Hey everyone, this episode of Voices in Japan is brought to you by Rizutsu Lodges. Rizutsu Lodges is located less than five minutes walk uh, to the main Rizutsu ski resort gondola. There are Japanese, Western and apartment style rooms with breakfast options available. There's also a Japanese sento or public bath there, a ski room with tune-up tables, two convenience stores very close by and lots of free parking. There are also barbecue packages available in the summer so check out the website rizutsulodges.com to find out more. On this episode of Voices in Japan, we are joined by Jennifer, owner of Reza Wood Designs, a company that takes recycled whiskey barrels from Scotland's great distilleries and transforms them into gifts and furniture. We have a really interesting conversation with Jennifer about living and teaching English in Kobe, why Kobe is such a great city to visit and live, going to the 1998 Nagano Winter Olympics, why Jennifer left Japan, how she started Reza Wood Designs, Jennifer's hometown in Scotland and its relationship with Yoichi in Hokkaido, the popularity of Japanese whiskey and much, much more. All right, on with the show. You so you were saying that you uh, lived in Japan, uh, I guess a little while ago. Uh, when was that exactly? Yeah, 1997. I I came out to Japan at first. Yeah. And was there something that kind of like sparked that interest in Japan, or you were always interested in Japan, or? Well, I guess I kind of always was interested, um, just because it's so different. Perceived to be as so different, you know. Uh, and after university, I'd decided to go to Canada for a year. I'd got a working holiday visa, um, so I went out to Canada. Um, but I remember just before I went out to Canada, I saw a poster advertising some kind of study trip to go out to Japan, and I was like, "Oh God, I'd really like to do that." I was like, "No, I've made a decision to go to Canada. I'll go to Canada first, and then maybe after that, I'll go to Japan." So that's what I did. But when I got to Canada, I was working in Banff in the Rocky Mountains. And so I hadn't realized when I went there, but of course, that's where a lot of Japanese tourists were going for their summer vacation. And so I was surrounded by Japanese people on holiday and also a lot of Japanese working there or Japanese expats. And so I started to learn a little bit of Japanese um, to help the guests. I was working in a hotel at the time on reception. Um, so they used to come up and ask for their room key and uh, they'd ask in Japanese. So we learned the numbers so that we could we could understand and we could help them. And then one day somebody said to me, you should go and work in Japan. And I was like, well, you know, I'd really like to, but what would I do there? I don't speak any Japanese. And they're like, oh, you don't need to. You can, just, you can teach English. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, it's easy. Everybody's doing it. And so um, I saw a job advert 
in a in the newspaper. I applied. I had to fly to the other side of Canada for an interview, and before I knew it, I was I was packing my bags to go back to Scotland for a little while, and then out to Japan. Well, your your story is quite similar to mine, uh, Jennifer. <laughs> like I went to Canada as well for a hey. year. Yeah, I, I went to um, Whistler. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, Great. for, uh, you know, I was, I was planning to go for a ski season, stay there for the year. And then I worked in a, in a sushi restaurant oh. and met a bunch of Japanese people. And they said, yeah, you should go to Japan. You should go to Hokkaido because it has the best snow in the world, basically. Um, oh. And then I went back to England, um, was planning to go to Japan ever since then. And then, yeah, same thing, saw an ad in a newspaper for a, english company um eon so i ended up going for eon but yeah i think nova you worked for nova and nova was one of my options as well right Uh yeah how was that working for for nova at that time it was amazing yeah it was was fantastic because i mean i had no teaching experience at all apart from a bit of language exchange which i'd done in canada i'd volunteered in the library um in a literacy project um but I'd been given a Japanese student, actually, which was uh, unexpected. So apart from that, apart from a little bit of one-to-one tutoring, I had no idea about how to teach, how to do anything. Um, but of course, that's, as you've said in a, a previous episode, um, that's what they want. You know, they want people who are kind of fresh off the boat and can be trained <laughs> to do it the, the way of that particular language school. Right. And, I mean, the training was like for three days, and there was a system. I mean, there's always a, a system, a method, steps that you go through. And it was easy to learn. Um, it was relatively effective. Uh, the students actually, they liked it. Um, and before you knew it, you're in a class. And, and that was it. It was brilliant. And everything, of course, is very well set up. You know, they've got a, they've got a house for you. Uh, they meet you at the airport. Um, they... You know, they set up your health insurance. So it's a great, a great system. It's a country where you don't speak the language and you don't really know anything about it. Yeah, they've got it really well so that, uh, you know, anyone, just like you said, even if they have very little experience, they can usually bring them in, get them on, the, on their feet and running like pretty straight right out of the gate. And you were actually, uh, I think you said you were living in Kobe. Was that? in Kobe proper or was it a little bit outside of Kobe or yeah well I don't know have you guys been to Kobe I haven't Ben have you been there I haven't been there either no and and it's funny because my image of Kobe is always you know I mean it is a big city and everything but I always have this image that is bigger than Sapporo but I think population wise uh, Sapporo is actually bigger than Kobe I think at least currently Kobe is like 1.5 million and Sapporo now we're almost at 2 million people but I mean, obviously, uh, the big earthquake that happened uh, in that area in the 90s and stuff and just have this uh, image of it being a really big city. But, uh, yeah, were you so were you in Kobe proper? Or were you outside of Kobe? Or I was about – my first apartment was about, let's see, 15 minutes from the city centre. Uh, and my, my first job in, in, this, in the language school was about uh, 10 minutes from there. So I was about, I guess – 25 minutes half an hour away from from the main city that's where i was working yeah okay 
Yeah. And you were there for the whole three years, the whole time you were in Japan, that first trip. A student called me, yeah. yeah. Mm. It's a I, fantastic city. I mean, it really is. Yeah, I've, um, I've yeah, like the only thing I really know about Kobe is Kobe beef, because that's <laughs> very famous for that. But I've always heard of people wanting to visit Kobe. And I kind of want to visit, but I don't really know anything about it. So I wondered if you could share like why... Uh, why do you think it's such a great city to to visit or to live? Um, well, it's it's very popular with Japanese people because it's it, it's kind of seen as an exotic uh, city. I think it's um, it was one of the first cities to open up internationally to the West, uh, wasn't it? Alongside uh, Yokohama, um, and of course it's a it's a port city. And there were a lot of foreign residents. In fact, there's a foreign residence area um, in the north of Kobe called Kitanocho. And up there, you can find a whole bunch of um, houses which were built, I think, in the must have been 19th century, of Western-style houses. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I went back in 2018, there's, uh, there's actually a Western-style house that they've now turned into a very nice uh, Starbucks, uh, which is interesting. Um, so they've got like a British house, um, which used to be a, an embassy or, or a consulate. Um, if you go in there, you can see a London taxi and that kind of thing. So if you're looking to, for a little bit of exotic in, in Japan, Kobe's um, a popular place. Um, just behind Kitanocho, there's the Rocco Mountains, which are fantastic. You can go up into the mountains. They've got a herb garden up there. You can go hiking. Um, you can take the cable car all the way up and over the mountains to the other side and go to a place called Arima, which is a famous onsen town. Hmm. Um, but then if you're back in Kobe proper, um, you're, you're right next to the sea. So there's some beaches not too far away. Um, you can go down to uh, American Park, um, which is right down on the waterfront. Of course, we've got um, Akashi Kaikyo Bridge as well across to Awaji Island. And from there, you can go on to Shikoku. Um, but for me, apart from the beauty of Kobe, because it is, it is one of the, the most beautiful cities in Japan, I think, um, it's also the location of Kobe is amazing because from there you can get to so many different places as a day trip. So you can go to Kyoto for the day. Osaka is not very far away. Um, Himeji Castle is just down the road. Um, so you can't you can't beat it for accessibility. Yeah, I lived in uh, Mieken for six months, about a half a year, and that's uh, kind of the same with uh, that area because it's kind of right in the middle uh, in between. Well, Osaka is just like an hour train away, hour train right away. Maybe it was Shinkansen. And then uh, Nagoya is also just like an hour away. So like kind of that area, a lot of those big cities are just all within, like you said, a day trip away from each other. Um, (laughs) Whereas here up here in Hokkaido, you know, everything's like a flight away or something. (laughs) It's not uh, too accessible. Yeah. But you were saying that uh, some of those great places to visit, and you had mentioned that you actually uh, had the opportunity to even go to the Nagano Olympics, was it? Was that in 1998, I guess? That's right, yeah, 1998, yeah. Yeah, we did. And I I was trying to 
remember, you know, when you first uh, mentioned that in, in your email, I was trying to remember, like, what actually happened there. And it's all a bit of a, a blur because I, I think we actually went for the day. I think, I think oh, wow. we, there was a crowd of us that went from the language schools I was working at. And we must have got up really, really early and got the Shinkansen, I guess. Got there. We were all so excited just to get to the Olympics. We'd only managed to get tickets to see the, the hockey. I can't even remember who was playing exactly. <laughs> I think it might have been Belarus. Uh, but I cannot remember who they were playing against. I can't remember who won either. <laughs> we were just so excited to be like, oh, we're at the Olympics, you know. But, yeah, Nagano, when I... It's such a, a beautiful location too, but of course with so many people there and so many distractions, we couldn't really appreciate it. I'd, I'd like to go back and see it, you know, properly rather than just as a host host city, if you like. Yeah, I went there uh, for work um, a couple of years ago at a former company I was working at, and I just remember like that area being so beautiful, like. All of the uh, freeways that you drive on kind of go through the mountains uh, around that area. And, I mean, you can understand, like, why they would hold the Olympics at that place. Um, Mm. But I just remember it being so scenic and everything. Do you remember, though? Because we're kind of having, obviously, we had the build-up to the Olympics this year in Japan that didn't happen. And then uh, now it's been postponed to next year. We'll see what happens with that. But do you remember if there was kind of like that whole buzz of the build-up of the Olympics going to happen? Uh, going going to take place in the country and stuff. It wasn't it wasn't like it is now. There just there wasn't the same excitement. In fact, a lot of people because of course we we told the students you know we're going to the Winter Olympics. You can't wait. You know it's, we're going to Nagano. It's so excited, and they were like, oh. <laughs> 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 no, they didn't. They weren't that bothered at all. Do you yeah. think because it was uh, Winter Olympics rather than the Summer Olympics? Yeah, perhaps. Mm. Um, or maybe because we were, I guess, quite far away from where it was happening. Maybe if, if we'd been a bit a bit closer to, to Nagano, maybe there was more excitement there about mm. it. Yeah, maybe the uh, media wasn't trying to make it into as much of a commercial event as obviously they are these days. So. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've always wanted to go to Nagano just, you know, just to try out the snowboarding. And you said you've been there, but how, how is the snow compared to uh, the snow in Hokkaido? Oh, actually, I went there during the summertime uh, <laughs> for an exhibition and stuff. So, yeah, I unfortunately didn't get to enjoy the snow and can't compare it to, to Hokkaido snow. But, I mean, the area itself, again, is just really beautiful. I mean, the mountains are – I mean, we have tall mountains here in Hokkaido too, but they're kind of a little bit away from support of the tall ones. But Nagano, like – uh, you know, everything's right around there. So when you're driving, like the clouds are kind of even below the top of the mountain level. And I mean, it just really, it looks like what Japan, uh, you would Im- imagine Japan to look like, you know, very green and lush. And then the clouds kind of lower than the mountains and everything. So, hmm. but Jennifer, you were also saying you had some other pretty interesting experiences while you were living down there. Like, uh, did you say you did a temple stay somewhere? Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. In uh, Koyasan. Yeah, where exactly is that? That's uh, Wakayama, so not too far from from Osaka. I guess south of Osaka, again towards the towards the coast. Okay, but you actually go and stay 
at a Buddhist uh, temple for these temple stays? Yes, that's right. I mean, there's so many temples up in this uh, mountain. And yeah, so it's it's a bit like a ryokan stay. Um, so you have your uh, traditional tatami room. I guess uh, the main difference is the, the food because they're serving you um, vegetarian. It's a complete vegetarian meal. It's a, a, one of these set meals that they, they serve on the, the low tables um, with all the different um, things um, laid out. It was really interesting to see because uh, so many of the different types of food, I had absolutely no idea of what it was. You know, it looks beautiful, but absolutely no idea what I was eating. But <laughs> relax, it's, it's all vegetarian stuff. And then um, in the morning, you can get up early and join the, the prayers and the, the, the monks. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's definitely different. But we went with a group of Japanese friends and one of my friends was at university one of my Chinese friends was at university and so it was some of her uh, professors and and his colleagues so we went to stay with them so there was a group of us hmm. um, and that's where I made my my big mistake with the, the seating um, because we, when we went in to uh, have dinner our room was all set up you know for small tables and all very nice and they made the mistake of saying to me have a seat and so I just had a seat and I, it was only after I sat down and everybody started talking and it was a bit of uh, shuffling that I realized I was in the wrong place. You know, I was sitting in like the, the highest level. <laughs> <laughs> Head of the table. Absolutely. absolutely. And um, they all had to kind of jostle me out and uh, put me in my rightful place. And I think I was the youngest there. So I think I was like way, you know, way down there. The, uh, the line <laughs> and uh, they were all kind of really upset about that about about that happening <laughs> but I remember the next day at breakfast they made sure that they were, they were all down very early so that couldn't happen again so the time <laughs> I arrived in my place left so well done <laughs> that's funny because like sometimes uh, I was actually going to ask if they like uh if they brought it up that they needed to change seats and stuff, because sometimes like they won't really, uh, you know, they'll kind of take the Japanese approach where they are kind of trying to hint that maybe something needs to be done, but they won't just come out and directly say it. Like um, we recently stayed at a, uh, an onsen in Otaru. And uh, when we walked, it was like in the uh, room that we ate in was separate from our room obviously but it was kind of like a private room that they put us in to uh to eat because of the whole situation with covid they were kind of having all the customers um eat in private rooms and stuff and uh so we my wife and my daughter and myself we went there and uh my daughter wanted to wear her sandals but she didn't want to walk so i just kind of picked her up and she had her sandals on and then we went into the room and uh, the table was in the middle of the room on the tatami and I took her over there, and I just kind of put her in her in her child's seat, and I just took her uh, her her slippers, and I just put them on the floor. Didn't really think about it because I was just trying to get to my seat so they could start serving the food. So, but there was like you know outdoor slippers kind of in the middle of the tatami room, which is obviously a big faux pas in Japan. 
I don't know. They must have brought in like three dishes at least or something. And nobody was saying anything about the slippers. And then finally, like one person kind of kept looking down, kept looking down at them. And then I remembered, oh, the slippers are over there. So I had to like run over and take them out and everything. I mean, it wasn't a huge faux pas or anything like sitting in the wrong seat, I guess. But uh, but it's interesting that they actually kind of brought it up that you guys had to change seats and everything. So. Well, it's, I think if I remember rightly, they brought it up to my Chinese friend who spoke good Japanese, and she was the one that's like Jennifer. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm curious to know because even though I've been in Japan for such a long time, I don't even know that kind of cultural tradition. Like, what is the correct seating position in that situation? Like, if I had that same situation, I don't know what I would do. Where should where should I sit? My understanding is it's like usually the lowest ranking person or maybe the youngest person will be sitting closest to the door, whereas the highest rank or uh, most superior person will be sitting furthest away from the door, mm. um, at least especially at restaurants and stuff for dinner parties. And then that person will be the one ordering um, to the, uh, you know, dealing with the waiters and the waitresses and everything. But as a foreigner, like sometimes you just kind of like, uh, sit away from the door because obviously, you know, sometimes you're not going to be the one ordering and everything if it's a room full of Japanese people and you tend right. to sit furthest away from the door. So if you so, sit closest to the door, basically you're responsible for ordering and kind of maintaining the the situation. I, I would guess. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer, was that kind of, do you remember what the setup was? Was it something like that or was it different? Or I, I didn't have to, to worry about that because it was all, it was all organized and it had all been pre pre-ordered and pre-booked. So it was just a case of sitting and someone was bringing you everything that you needed. There was no actual interaction required. So, mm. so. Uh, but uh, you also mentioned that you uh, maybe made a huge mistake sometime with uh, presenting someone with flowers. What exactly <laughs> happened there? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to my language exchange partner's house for the first time uh, and I thought, oh, I'll get her some flowers. And I just went into the supermarket, maybe it was maybe it was Dye or something like that. And I saw these flowers, it was like um they were all different colours. I think it was a one flower of each colour, I think it was, and it was quite leafy. There was a lot of greenery. And I thought, that's well, it was it was quite small, but it was it was quite pretty. And I thought, oh, that's quite nice. I'll just get that. Um, and then I gave it to her and she was like, oh, these are for, <laughs> these are for a grave. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like exactly the thing that I would do. Like, I think, I think every time I go to like a, a flower shop in a supermarket, like, like die, like you said, or Rouse or something. And uh, the flowers that I always think are nice to give to someone, my friend or my wife I'm with is like, no, those are for a grave. <laughs> <laughs> so I always choose the wrong ones. So I try not to choose flowers for people unless they're like roses because you can't really go wrong with roses. Yeah, true, true. But as I said to my language exchange partner, you know, it's, a, it's a thought that counts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, I guess you came back in 2018 for a pretty big trip uh, as a family, you were saying, and uh, you guys visited, it sounds like, a few different cities uh, mm. 
during that trip. And then you also, and I guess this kind of connects uh, uh, to your business. Um, you guys visited the Yamazaki Distillery, was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So where exactly is that? It's between Osaka and Kyoto. Okay. So yeah, so we pretty much uh, stopped off on the way to to Kyoto, which was was great. Um, yeah, it was really great to to get back to Japan after so many years away. And I was I was actually really worried about going back because I thought, oh, what if it's you know what if it's changed too much, or what if I've changed too much and I don't like it anymore? I don't want to erase all the the good memories. Um, and also, of course, I was going back with my husband and daughter uh so you know previously i've been living a happy single life in, in Kobe, <laughs> so I mean, totally different circumstances yeah I, so it was a lot of trepidation about that trip but in reality i felt exactly the same way about japan as i as i had when i first arrived and so many things hadn't changed which was really interesting so Jennifer, when you when you left japan the first time in <clears throat> in 2000 um was there a reason why you left and, and what did you go back to? Yeah, it, I'd been there 50 years. I'd had a fantastic time. Uh, I'd, I'd had a lot of great experiences. And I was thinking it's maybe time to go do something else, try something else or move things on a bit, you know, move my life on a bit. I, I had seen a lot of people come to Japan, enjoy it, and then stay a bit too long and feel that they didn't want to stay anymore. Uh, one of my best friends, before she left Japan, she actually got to the stage where she almost hated it and couldn't wait to leave. And I I saw quite a few people experience that, and I, I didn't want to experience that. I wanted to leave Japan on a high, um, you know, still loving it. And also my my sister just had a baby, um, so I wanted to go back and see my my niece. And I knew that I wanted to carry on teaching, so I wanted to get proper teaching qualifications. And I thought, you know, Japan has been amazing. There's going to be other places that are just as amazing. So yeah, that's 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 really why why I decided to to go. It's never with the intention of never coming back. It was mm. the intention of let's go and see what else there is. And then if, if Japan is still the place, then I'll, I'll find my way back somehow. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've met, like you said, a few people in that situation where they've probably been in, in Japan too long or not been in here too long, but maybe they weren't suitable to live in the country after all for for a long time like they probably would have been happier if they they went home like missed their family and friends too much and i think that the culture difference can be sometimes uh, a bit too much for some people i've uh, yeah. i've heard a lot of you know after people have been here for a long time they just complain about the country all the time you know um yeah and, and that's probably when yeah it's time to it's time to leave uh-huh yeah i mean it's not japan's not for everybody mm. um some people love it for a little while and then they don't some people love it you know forever some people feel very comfortable there um some people find it very difficult it's, it's actually really really interesting to you know to to see to see all these different people and their different reactions have you still got friends here that you knew 
uh, back in 1997 and 2000? No. Oh, they've no. all left. Yeah. Yeah. That's they've interesting. Yeah. So how did you come up with your, your business idea? Like, could you explain what, um, what your business is and, and how you came up with that idea? Yeah. So my, my husband has been woodworking for, well, most, most of his life really. It's his, it's his passion. He, he absolutely loves it. And he's, he's very, very good at what he does. I mean, it's all about quality rather than quantity. Um, and we were looking for something that we could turn into um, gifts. His main love, I guess, is making furniture. Um, but it's, it's harder to, to shift furniture you know, continually. And so we're looking for something small, something um, that we could sell online, um, something that's easy to post, and something that people would have a connection with and so you know he's looking around and he's, he's like oh there's so many whiskey barrels everywhere and, and there are there's whiskey barrels everywhere in, in scotland a lot of them are <laughs> planters uh, a lot of them are have been turned into bins um all kinds of stuff and he's like oh, you know maybe i can i can do that i mean because whiskey barrels are the solid oak you know it's great wood um and so yeah he started to experiment with a few different items and then it just kind of uh, led on from there and now we work pr primarily with uh, whiskey barrels that distilleries no longer need you know they've finished their, their working life and uh going back to that visit to the yamazaki distillery um and it kind of, i think it mentioned the uh, kind of in the information on your uh, business's website that you guys have uh visited a lot of different distilleries is that is that true or Yes, yes, we have uh, in in Scotland. To be honest, I don't know too much about distilleries and stuff. Uh, when you, I mean, I've read up on them and everything, but when you go, like, what is the, uh, what is the general? Uh, I mean, do you take a tour there and, uh, and they show the the whole process, distillation process, and everything? And yeah, I mean, there's well, there's more than a hundred uh, distilleries in Scotland. Uh, I don't know the exact number; it changes all the time because there's always new ones opening. Um, so I, I can't I can't lay like, claim to having visited them all, but <laughs> but we have been around a fair few um, just to get a, get a, an idea of you know the types of whiskies out there and the types of people that, that like those those whiskies. My favourite place to go um, to, to see whiskey distilleries is Isla. That's our whiskey island. In Isla, there's a lovely distillery called uh, Lafroig. Um, that's my favourite distillery to visit. It's really historic building, and the position is amazing because it's it's right next to the shore. So the water is literally lapping off the building where they create the whiskey. Hmm. Uh, and they're they've got a great <laughs> a great idea for for people who love this brand because what what happens is. You can become a friend of Lafroig. And when you become a friend of Lafroig, you get a square foot of land in Isla. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, wow. So everybody gets their own little square foot of land. Hold on. How, how do you become a friend with Lafroig? I think you have, you have to, to apply. Buy a bottle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I have, a, I have a couple of bottles at home. Does that mean I'm a, I'm a friend? <laughs> Register, Ben, and then you'll get your square foot of land. Oh. <laughs> and then when you go to the distillery, right, we've got a little museum. But at the back, they've got a place where you can um, print out your uh, certificate as a friend. And on the certificate, it gives you the coordinates for your uh, square foot of land. You can then borrow a pair of welly boots and pick up a flag from whichever country you wish to represent. And then you can go actually over to where your land is um, and find um, where your piece is and plant your flag. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really claiming your land. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's great to go there and see all the different flags. I mean, it's incredible what you know, all the different type of people that actually make it to this small island. Um, I mean, it's two and a half hours by ferry um, from the mainland. And it's about, I think, a two and a half hour drive from Glasgow. So, I mean, it's, it's well off the beaten track. Um, mm. but, but people still still make that effort because they love, they love Isla whiskey. And there's, there's obviously a strong connection uh, between Japan and Scotland, like, uh, you know, some of the uh, famous... Uh, whiskey brands in in japan uh the people i guess originally studied in scotland about whiskey making and you were saying actually that the wife of uh, the founder of nika whiskey is actually from your hometown is that correct yes it is yes uh rita cohen yes and she's known as the, the mother of japanese whiskey and yes she was born and brought up in my hometown kirkintillich and isn't it interesting that I didn't know anything about her until I came back from Japan? <laughs> <laughs> and that was uh, that was after you guys had already started the uh, making the products out of the whiskey barrels. Or was that before? It was actually it was after. Wow! Yeah, it was after after that. Um, wow. I'd gone to the local museum, and because we were looking at getting some of our products in there, and then I was like, oh, I saw the small exhibition they have they actually have one of rita's kimonos on display um the kimono was actually presented by um nika whiskey back in the 1980s uh and i was like oh there's something japanese here and i read the story i was like oh my goodness i knew nothing about that i had known about thomas glover and i'd made the trip down to nagasaki to see his house and um to read about all the contributions he'd made to Japan, but I had no idea that um, there was someone from my own hometown. Funny, isn't it? Yeah, and she's obviously, I mean, that story was made even more popular very recently because there was the drama on NHK, the national broadcaster in Japan, I guess it was called Masan or something. Ben? Yeah. Do you know yeah. that drama at all? I heard about it. I never watched it, but I remember when it was on and everyone was talking about it. And yeah, Rita became very popular because it was basically about her, right? That was the, the show. Um, yeah, her and her husband, Masataka, and how they uh, created Nika Whiskey. So he went to your hometown, that's, that's right, Jennifer. And then he met Rita there. Yes, that's right. So I think it was in 1918, he, he made the trip to Glasgow um, and he'd been funded by the company that he worked for. He was 
he was a sake uh, distiller. And so he was working for a company that planned to create Scotch whiskey in Japan. Uh, and so they, they paid for his trip and his, you know, his uh, purpose was to learn as much as he could about how to make Scotch whiskey and then come back to Japan and took that into, into action. Um, and so he lodged um, with Rita's family in Kirkintilloch and Rita had, had lost her dad fairly recently. So the family um, were in need of some you know, financial support. And so they were taking in lodgers and they took him in. It said actually that he, he was a jujitsu expert. You guys do jujitsu, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, heard. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I heard something like uh, he was asked to teach the younger brother or something, jujitsu, and and that's how maybe another reason why he uh, came to know of Rita and stuff. But yeah, that's uh, that was definitely interesting to hear that. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. So I guess um, they, they fell in love quite quickly because they, they got married in 1920. Um, I think both families were against... Um, the marriage at the time, probably understandably, it must have been rare for, for that to happen in those days. Uh, and then later that year, they, they returned to Japan. But while he was in Scotland, he, he was collecting as much information as he could. And he did, I think, three different apprenticeships at distilleries all over Scotland. One up in the north in Speyside, uh, down in Campbelltown, and another one in the Lowlands. So... Yeah. How uh, how popular is Nika whiskey where you're from? Is it because of that story and that history? Is it popular there? Yeah, I mean, there's been a big push in, in recent years to make people more aware of, of this story. And there's been a lot of Japanese whiskey tasting events uh, in Kirkintilloch. And in fact, we've got a, a whiskey festival now, an annual whiskey festival, and Nika uh, have always been there um, with the whiskey brands for people to try, which is is great. Uh, and of course, Japanese whiskey is I mean, well respected, and it's it's a very good investment um, opportunity. So it's certainly popular from from that point. Lots of people are, are buying it and keeping it. Yeah, um, I mean, I think especially in the last, what would you say, like maybe. 20 years or so Japanese whiskey has is going through a boom like in in 2003 I think uh the Yamazaki 12 years single malt was the first uh whiskey to uh to win a gold medal at the international spirits challenge um and I think everyone's very surprised about that because it's always scotch whiskeys that win and to hear of a Japanese whiskey to win was a was a big shock to a lot of people Yes. And that was actually my favorite, my favorite whiskey. I'm, I'm not a big whiskey drinker. Like I don't know much about whiskey, but Yamazaki 12 years is my favorite one because one of my friends like eight years ago bought me it for my birthday or something. And then, yeah, I just heard of like they won a lot of awards, especially since uh, 2003 and uh, Nika as well have won some. Very well made whiskey. I mean, it's, it's really good stuff. Yeah. There's something about that drama, though. I mean, it was uh, obviously really popular, and it was uh, a big deal because it was like the uh, they were saying it was the first drama um, that cast a non-Japanese in the lead role because you know the mm-hmm. actress who played Rita um, 
you know, was a non-Japanese woman. But, I mean, you know, it's the story of Rita, who's from Scotland, and they cast an American actress in the place, <laughs> in the part. You know, there's got to be a little bit of ill-feeling there. Like, come on, guys going to make this a great story about the origins of this very <laughs> important brand now in Japan. You know, a little bit more historical accuracy there could help a bit, but... Uh, <laughs> No, no hard feelings there. No ill feelings uh, from the Scots about that casting. We're kind of used to it. They should have. They should have got in like Kelly, Kelly McDonald or someone. She's a very, you know, popular, famous, very good actress. You know, they could have asked her to come and do that. Yeah, um, it was interesting. I thought that they went for someone very. Um, very obviously Western looking as well. You know, she's, she's so blonde mm. and very, very pale skin. Um, Kate Fox, isn't it? But I thought she did a really good job. I mean, I've not watched all the episodes. Um, I've only watched a few. I found a few on YouTube, but um, I thought she was very good. Yeah. How's her, how's her accent? Does she have a Scottish accent or does she not well, even try? Not really. <laughs> That's okay. We can, we can forgive that. <laughs> Um, but you were saying though you've uh, been to Yamazaki, but you haven't actually been to the uh, Yoichi Distillery that's up here in Hokkaido near Otaru. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, and I'm I'm desperate to go to Yoichi now. In fact, I've got a, a leaflet here that I picked up from the whiskey festival I was at, and I, I just keep looking at it and going, oh, I've just got to get to Yoichi now. It looks incredibly beautiful. In fact, it looks like a Speyside Distillery. Just like you'd find in the Highlands. Uh, have you, have you been there, Buck? Yeah. I, I have. I haven't been there. Have you been it, there, Buck? You know what? Same thing. I, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say it's like it's one of those places where everybody who comes to visit Hokkaido from overseas or elsewhere, I'm like, you got to go to Yoichi Distillery. <laughs> I always recommend, and they all go, and they, you know, some of them even bring back a nice bottle as a gift, uh, you know, for recommending it and stuff. But I think it's kind of like one of those things that it's almost like a little bit local, so. Um, mm. you know, people from Sapporo don't go there too often. And I think also it might require that you kind of stay, uh, in Otaru overnight, which is about half hour, 45 minutes from Sapporo in order to be able to go to the, the uh, distillery and enjoy the day there. And, you know, people from Sapporo don't go to Otaru too often to, to stay the night cause it's just usually a day trip or something. So, but, uh, this other, uh, recently when we did stay at that onsen in Otaru, I was thinking like, oh, this is a great chance to finally go there. Um, but then the onsen itself ended up being so nice, uh, that we just kind of, uh, stayed around there relaxing as is usually the case when you go to onsens and stuff. But yeah. So Rita, you, you said in 2018, you came back to Japan for, um, for some business research. Um, what did that involve? Yeah, I... Because I'd been away from Japan for so so long, and because when I was in Japan, my main focus was not on uh, selling anything, apart from uh, language lessons, um, I wasn't. I felt I didn't really know enough about you know what what kind of products um, people were looking for, um, and also that Japan, of course, is well known for having top quality products, top quality presentation, top quality service. And so I wanted to to see that for myself and to see kind of what, what we needed to do to, to up our game really to get our product ready for Japanese markets. 
And I, I was pretty confident our product would be good for Japan because we'd had a Japanese customer here in Scotland um, buy some things from us and then take them out to Japan. Um, and she kind of um, acted as a, a middle person and, and sold, sold them on um, to a few different bars or a few different um, whiskey lovers out there. So we knew we had a we had a, a good product that potentially people could be interested in, but it was about how to you know how to make contacts back in Japan um, to make that happen because it's like everything else you need to to talk to the right people um, otherwise you know you're just kind of going around in circles and of course. Having been away for so long, I don't have any contacts in Japan again. So I'm I'm starting from from the beginning, and my Japanese is getting better. I've been working on it, but um, it was still pretty rusty at the time we went out. Um, I mean, I tried to use it as everywhere we went. Um, uh, I can still read Hiragana and Katakana, but my kanji is sort of gone. I, I can hardly remember any. Um, so it's it was kind of like trying to observe and trying to see what what was what and at the same time try and have a couple of meetings with um, people with British connections out there and see if there was any way that we could get some some help to to get our products uh, into the marketplace and what would be the best way to do that so we had a couple of meetings in Tokyo um, we met with SDI which is um, basically Scotland's equivalent of the Department of Trade and Industry. And then we met with the British um, Chamber of Commerce in Japan as well. Uh, And they were very, very good to us. I mean, very, very helpful to us and took a lot of time to to meet us and and explain a few different things, um, which we really appreciated because obviously we're just a a small company and we're not... not, um, an international corporation or, or anything like that. We just run the business ourselves. So, And have you guys found some uh, partners yet or you're still looking? Yeah, we're, we're still looking, still working on it. Uh, I just, you know, Japan is so big um, and it's it can be a bit, I guess, overwhelming. You're like, well, where do you start? Um, but now I'm, I'm thinking... You know, we should be focusing more on Hokkaido because that's where that's where the, the connection is with, with my town. And there's a lot of good things happening in Kirkintilla related to whiskey and related to Masataka and Rita's story because we've just had the 100-year uh, anniversary of them getting married. Uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's my, my focus now. And... I'd really like to see, um, it's not just about us getting into Japan, I'd really like to see Yoichi better represented in, in Kirkintilic as well. You know, I'd love to see more Japanese products being, being sold there. And a friend of mine is about to open a whiskey shop in Kirkintilic, so I'm hoping um, you know that 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 can happen, and there can be a better a better exchange and better communication between the two the two well, times. Well, with all that history and everything, I mean, it seems like something that uh, is bound to happen at some point. So it sounds like a great opportunity, and and you know we have uh, a good number of listeners actually up here in Hokkaido. So 
hopefully if anyone's out there and interested, we can uh, we could try to help out to make that connection happen and, and maybe even uh, put a little bit of our own energy behind it as well. Um, just to let people know, can you talk about exactly some of the specific products you guys are making? And I think it was uh, mentioning on your website too that you guys have won uh, an award uh, for at least one of your products. Oh, yeah, sure. So, yeah, so our company is called Razor Wood Designs. And we basically take whiskey barrels at the end of their working life and we turn them into gifts and furniture. So make a range of different products um, from cufflinks uh, up to pens. Uh, we also do whiskey tasting trays. Um, so we have a, a stave from the barrel and it can hold um, a set of glasses with a, a water jug. Uh, we use Harris Tweed, um, which is uh, Scotland's greatest uh, textile uh, and also popular in Japan, I believe, um, to sit the glasses on. Uh, we also do like a Lazy Susan with a, a map of Isla, uh, laser engraved, um, which also holds glasses and, and jugs. And we do different pieces of furniture, tables, uh, lamps, all kinds of products. Um, we've got a, a good selection available on our website. Um, but in addition to that, we also do a lot of bespoke products for distilleries. So, for example, um, one of our local distilleries, we have created the tasting trays for their tasting events. They do a very nice uh, whiskey and chocolate pairing event and created special trays engraved with their branding um, for that. So that's, that's uh, always lots of fun to, to do things like that and then see people uh, enjoying your product. Great. Yeah, I took a uh, look at the different products on your website and uh, I just like I kind of sent to you in an email. I'm definitely interested in the clocks. They look great. Uh, actually, some of the furniture too. Uh, you know, it was also saying actually that the the products retain some of the uh, the smell from the uh, from the caskets and the whole distillery process. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the, the cask. Every cask is, is different. But when you first... Uh, crack the cask open yeah the smell is overwhelming I and mean, sometimes we're worried when we're driving about with whiskey barrel in the back of the car you know if we get stopped by the, by the police the smell is just <laughs> you've definitely been drinking um yeah but unfortunately over time that smell fades sadly okay mm. it'd be great to have some kind of thing that you could you know spray spray onto it so it's constantly had the whiskey aroma but uh no did you did you know it's interesting though you mentioned that about the smell in the car and ben i don't know if you know this but we recently did, recently did that episode about driving but did you guys know it's actually legal to have alcohol open in the car in japan it, it's legal it's legal <laughs> as long as the driver the driver obviously is zero tolerance but my wife told me this this one time that yeah passengers in the car can drink alcohol <laughs> And I was like, man, that is not true. You got to be kidding. But uh, she looked it up and it was actually true. And, uh, and I mean, the first thing we did to celebrate is we went down, got in the car. I let her drive. I got in the back seat with my daughter, popped, a, opened up a beer can. We just drove around and I was like, I can't believe like I'm legally drinking in the moving vehicle, you know, <laughs> not that I would re recommend that in uh, any other country and maybe not even in Japan. You don't want to tempt your driver, but I was definitely surprised to find that out. Yeah. 
<laughs> and, and Jennifer, you, uh, did your company ship abroad as well to other countries? Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. So we, we've got a lot of uh, customers in the US. Uh, we also have a lot of customers in Germany. Um, but and Australia as well. Yeah. So yeah, we sli- we ship all over. And you guys are easiest place uh, for people to find out is on your uh, company website. Are you guys also on social media as well? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, yeah, uh, Etsy, which is an online shopping site. E T S Y Etsy. Mm. That's quite and, popular in America. And also, uh, you mentioned to us that that listeners to the show get a get some discounts. That's right. Yes. So if you go onto our website, uh, you can browse our products. If you see something you like. Um, you can use the code VOICES in Japan, uh, all capital letters, and you'll get 15% off any of our products available for sale in the online shop. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a great deal, man. Yeah. And that's for a, for a month, right? That, that offer's available. So um, listeners, make sure to check when this episode was broadcast because, uh, yeah, it's, it's the month from the, the date of that broadcast. And uh, man, I think we uh, actually covered quite a bit today. Uh, ben, was there anything else you wanted to ask about? No, no. I just want to say thanks, Jennifer, for coming on and um, sharing your your story, your your journey from Japan to to where you are now. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best for uh, for your business. Oh, thanks very much, uh, Ben and Burke, for for having me on. It's been great to talk about japan you can tell i love talking about japan so <laughs> it's been a fantastic uh, experience thank you so much and uh, i'm looking forward to your next episodes yeah thank you so much for reaching out uh, definitely appreciate it and these products man this, uh my grandfather actually has a, a little bit of uh had a history with wood, woodworking as well so these products were really interesting for me to see and uh yeah it was a great opportunity to learn something new and to connect with somebody overseas who has a connection to japan so thank you yeah, great. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Jennifer. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.